of iBuzz, the animal care and welfare podcast by Animal Concepts and the Practical Animal Welfare Science, the PAUSE platform. I'm your host, Sabrina Brando, and today I am delighted to welcome Gordon Burghardt, alumni distinguished professor in the psychology, ecology, and evolutionary biology departments at the University of Tennessee in the USA. Welcome, Gordon. I'm glad to be here. Yes, absolutely delighted to have you on the podcast. So many, you have an incredible amount of work that you have done on all kinds of topics across all kinds of taxa. It's really impressive to see, you know, the, the books you've written and, and everything else. So, you know, we'll have to have you back for some other podcasts already. But, you know, for those that don't know you, could you please do a short introduction to yourself? Uh, yes. Uh... I grew up in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, and I uh, went to University of Chicago, and my main interest initially was in chemistry. I really liked chemistry as a, as a possible profession, but I always loved animals, particularly snakes, but I had loads of pets, uh, lizards, turtles, uh, a budgie, uh, a possum, a skunk, uh, not a possum, a raccoon, a skunk, a variety of different animals, uh, and, but I was really told that you couldn't really make a career of that. But uh, when I went to the University of Chicago, uh, they began a new program, called, uh, undergraduate program in biopsychology. And uh, finally, I screwed up enough courage to see the director of that program, who when he heard about my interests, that I really was interested in uh, studying rats and pigeons and laboratory environments, uh, but was really interested in what animals really did in nature, particularly reptiles. He said, oh, I know the person for you. You need to take Dr. Eckert Hess's course on instinctive behavior. Uh, and I took that course and never turned back. And uh, he accepted me to work in his lab as an undergraduate. I studied lizards uh, and then uh, applied for grad school working with him and uh, did my work on, on snakes. And uh, after teaching there for a little bit, I came to the University of Tennessee where I've been for uh, over 50 years. Amazing. And there's so many people who want to get into this, like, you know, like you said, like, could you make a career out of it or not? And do you have suggestions for people that want to study animals or want to get into academia or perhaps in an animal related job in some of the things that they could be doing to increase their chances? Well, since I've been out of the the sort of the uh, the job market in a way for so long, I probably have don't have as much uh, good wisdom to convey uh, as uh, people uh, that have been in uh, looking get into this career uh, more recent times. But certainly, uh, you want to follow up your interests. You want to find uh, good mentors and uh, people doing types of things, uh, both in uh, at universities or at zoos or uh, institu other institutions where you can uh, get your foot in the door 
see if you really enjoy this kind of work and uh, what you think you can contribute to it and uh, be passionate, uh, but realistic uh, so that uh, you can really carry out doing the type of work that you uh, train yourself for. Thank you, that's wonderful advice. Could you, you talked about, you know, how many different pets uh, and that you have a specific interest in, in snakes, but you do actually do a lot of different types of research, lines of work and research interests. Could you expand a little bit on the aspects that you're working on predominantly? Well, currently, uh, my... I don't work too much directly with uh, with animals because my laboratory had to be moved, and so uh, I'm not working uh, directly with animals. I'm working with other laboratories. Uh, we're working now on analyzing loads of video uh, records of uh, behavior of bears and snakes and monkeys and uh, puppies and wolves playing a variety of different activities that we're carrying out uh, using. Uh, data that we've that we've collected uh, but in the past i've worked on many different uh, groups of animals and uh, collaborated with people uh, you know around the world and that's been a really uh, great pleasure in my life uh, career-wise is the type of interactions i've had with people uh, around the world uh, working with all different kinds of animals and being able to be involved in uh, these kinds of endeavors Yes, so you're very well known for your book on play that we will be talking about later. But And recently you had also a cover story on, you know, you mentioned bears and videos. And can you talk a little bit about uh, one of your latest papers on that made the cover story on the bears and playing in dens that also used video? Yes, this is sort of interesting in that uh, when I first came to the University of Tennessee, uh, and I was interested in snake behavior and so on. Well, in the psychology department and around uh, uh, here, not that many people really interested in snakes, including the, the, the students. Uh, but within a year or so of being here, uh, the Great Smoky Mountains National Park, which is uh, not that far away, less than an hour's drive uh, from uh, the University of Tennessee, uh, they were having problems with black bears. And they had bear jams where people would be driving and they see a bear and they'd stop and back up these one lane roads uh, for long periods of time as bears were being fed. Uh, then there were uh, would be uh, interactions with the bears that weren't very favorable. The bears would wander into picnic grounds and camp areas and take the food. And so the park, was really concerned about this. This was before there were bear-proof garbage cans and things like that. So they said that they were gonna have a 10-point plan to uh, uh, deal with this. And they had a number of procedures that I thought were questionable, like uh, equipping the rangers with baseball bats. So if a bear was uh, acting up, they would go out and clobber the bear with a baseball bat as a way to teach its, quote, instinctive fear of humans. And uh, I thought this was really uh, not very <laughs> a good procedure from my own behavior standpoint. Although I knew nothing about bears, I knew about animal behavior. And so we uh, developed a relationship with the superintendent of the 
at the Smoky Park, uh, Great Smoky Mountain National Park. I brought him and his um, uh, people into uh, the university to give a joint seminar to the uh, zoology and psychology departments uh, about their problems. And uh, we developed then a research program uh, to look at bears in the, in the park. Well, in the process of doing that, some bears, uh, orphan bears were found. And since I was the person who was looking at bears up in the park, they said, hey, do something with these animals. So we actually raised bear cubs in our house for quite a while and then uh, received some funding to build enclosures in the park where we studied the behavior of these animals. So this is way back in 19, uh, 1970s. Well, move ahead uh, several decades, and uh, Lynn Rogers, who's a very well-known bear uh, researcher up in Minnesota, developed the procedure of uh, looking at bears, pregnant bear mothers uh, in the dens through uh, solar-powered den cams. And this is the first evidence that we actually could get of the behavior of bears, including the newborn cubs in the dens, in their natural dens in the wild. And so he accumulated uh, many, many hours uh, from the time the bears went into hibernation to the time that uh, the mother would emerge with her cubs in April, uh, like well, November to April, uh, every hour, every minute was recorded uh, by den cams. And uh, I was enlisted to help analyze the data in these uh, that were uh, collected, uh, which is really marvelous. And there's a number of YouTube videos available on uh, this uh, project. And uh, we had this paper in animals uh, that turned out to be a cover story uh, not too long ago. And uh, we saw that how this, the play behavior of these animals developed uh, in, the, uh, in the dens. Previously, the bears that we studied, for instance, um, really got me interested in the play behavior. Was the bears are the most playful animals uh, you can imagine. Uh, yet these were animals that already left the den. But what happened in the den was sort of a mystery. And that's what this, uh, this paper, uh, not just about play behavior, but discussed many aspects of uh, giving, from giving birth to the behavior of the mothers, the, the cubs. And in some instances, the yearling bears uh, stayed in the den with the mother the second year. Uh, so, uh, and then she would give birth to new cubs. So we would have uh, interaction between the yearlings, the cubs and the mother all going on in the dens. It was really pretty exciting to see these uh, dynamic relationships. That sounds wonderful. And also how wonderful to hear, you know, these decades of relationships and also going back to, you know, perhaps even older data or videos and, and all these collaborations. And we'll for sure link to uh, this article and uh, and the beautiful picture also of the cover story, which is just uh, really wonderful. So also next to all the other pets and, and snakes, also raising bear cubs in your home, <laughs> all these very, very special uh, activities. So you mentioned you have a special interest in, in research and, you know, 
stories also around studying snakes and other reptiles and personality also in individually uh, individuality in reptile behavior could you talk a little bit uh, to that topic of what you have done in that um, domain well er very early on one of the things that uh, i worked at my uh, early dissertation uh, was on the behavior of snakes to uh, prey stimuli. What we showed is that uh, baby snakes right at birth uh, can recognize through chemical means the type of prey they, quotes uh, are adapted to eat. So uh, garter snakes that uh, prey on, uh, normally feed on earthworms and say frogs and fish, uh, right at birth they respond to chemical cues and presented on cotton swabs, for instance, that they'll tongue flick at and actually attack, uh, even though they've never eaten a thing in their life. Uh, yet if you uh, give them uh, uh, chemical cues from mice or from insects, uh, things that they don't normally eat, they ignore them. On the other hand, snakes like green snakes uh, that uh, eat insects, uh, they responded to the insect chemical cues, but not to those from worms and fish and amphibians and so on. So we're able to show that uh, these animals right at birth have uh, innate recognition of the types of prey that uh, would be adapted for them to, uh, uh, to eat. But we also noticed that there were great individual differences that were very stable. And even from the same uh, mother, and these garter snakes may give up to 30 or 40 babies at a time. What we showed is that some of those snakes were worm preferers, for instance, and the others were fish preferers, very few sort of in between. And so we got the idea that there was this individuality in the prey preferences of these uh, baby snakes. Well then move ahead uh, a number of years and I had a, a grad student, uh, Hal Herzog, uh, who is uh, now well known for his uh, book on, on animals, uh, some we love, some we hate, some we eat, and a book that is now going into its second edition, uh, he just told me this week. Uh, but we looked at and he looked at uh, the behavior of baby snakes right at birth to uh, defensive kind of responses to uh, predatory uh, stimuli, like being having your finger waved in front of them and so on, or touching them in certain ways, and found again that some species were really uh, very responsive, others less so to certain kinds of stimuli, but that within the same group of animals, even the same litter or clutch, they differed from the individuality, personality differences. But when we first did these studies, uh, to talk about animal personality was not really a word that you could uh, uh, use in a scientific publication. Uh, so we may talk about temperament differences, uh, but now uh, animal personality studies are a major uh, area of, of, of research. And so uh, a few years ago, uh, some of my former students and I published a paper trying to review all the work uh, that's been done, at least up to that point, on individuality and personality differences in, in reptiles. And there's data coming out uh, from on turtles, on lizards, on snakes, on crocodilians, uh, again, showing great individuality and that the idea of uh, captive uh, 
rearing of animals or captive keeping of animals being stereotyped that this is what this animal does, this is what this species needs or how it responds. Uh, we have to be much broader in our concepts of the uh, flexibility, plasticity, and individuality of behavior, even of animals uh, like fish and insects and uh, reptiles. Yes, and that is something that of course, and luckily a lot of you know zoos and aquariums, people care for animals in different domains, also in labs and shelters, are really trying to look at you know the individual, the individual animal, their their personality, and also adapt the programs, whether it's training them, providing good environments for them and enrichment. So it's really exciting to see both change, you know, changes in how people talk about this, as you say, what could you or could you not talk about or write about? Um, and also how do we um, research it and and then use it when we are caring for animals. And you already also mentioned that you um, were looking at, for example, other taxa like uh, spiders, but also um, fishes and amphibians. So perhaps you could expand a little bit on some of the work that you have done there. Either it could maybe be learning or, you know, social learning in these species. Again, topics that maybe are not so common uh, to be studied or even discussed. Well, yes, my focus has been on reptile behavior and uh, but uh, we've looked at a variety of different uh, other species. Uh, in turtles, for instance, one of my, one of my um, latest uh, PhD uh, students, Karen Davis, uh, looked at uh, individual differences in social behavior and found that turtles, for instance, that live under uh, sort of aquatic turtles have a great repertoire of complex sociality that you only see if you can see them underwater. Uh, if you look at them um, when they're on land or basking, uh, you see some social interactions, but you don't see the uh, the details that you do if you look at them underwater. But you also showed experimentally in the lab that <clears throat> these animals can learn uh, discriminations, uh, visual discriminations quite easily, but they can also learn from each other. Uh, furthermore, uh, they, these learned behaviors of like knocking over bottles for food and so on uh, can remain in their memory for many years, even though they've never experienced that, uh, that trial again uh, or that experiment uh, for a long time. In other words, they have really long-term memories, almost like elephants are reputed to have. And uh, again, turtles, unlike uh, many other uh, animals, are very long-lived. And so uh, we know that in nature, they can remember where to come back to nests and uh, repeatedly over, over decades. And yet we can also show that uh, this type of uh, long-term memory occurs in, uh, in captive animals as well. Uh, we've also looked at uh, tool use. Uh, we're working with uh, Michael Kuba in Austria. And we showed that stingrays, for instance, have very complicated uh, behavioral repertoires. They can use tools and they so also uh, seem to 
have social learning and imitation of behavior of, of one animal to another. Again, this is something that uh, uh, not that many decades ago, it was uh, controversial as to whether monkeys and apes had real social imitation. And yet we're finding that it's very much uh, pervasive in the animal world. Yes, uh, Dr. Michael Kuba came uh, to do a, a webinar on the Practical Animal Welfare Science platform. Um, and that was absolutely wonderful as well. And, and you make such an important point also about, you know, when we do animal, you know, behavior observations, like where do we do the observations and what is it that we can see? And, you know, like this importance of studying the animals above and underwater uh, of, you know, for animals that spend part of their day or time underwater. And it's such an important aspect because uh, especially as land mammals uh, and not always being in the opportunity to see behavior underwater, depending on the water quality or whether we dive in certain areas, whether we care for the animals or observe them or not, we might miss complete you know, uh, parts of the behavior uh, as you just mentioned. So thank you for making that that point that's uh, so important. And I was just wondering also if you could talk a little bit uh, around, you know, what, when we talk about animals and trying to describe what we see or what we think might be going on, uh, you already mentioned it was, it was hard to maybe use certain words or that people were thinking about, well, is, you know, personality something that we can use or should we use temperament, but also, you know, how do we use our human stance? And uh, you've written extensively about critical anthropomorphism and, you know, also about a place for emotions in behavior systems research. Could you talk a little bit uh, on this topic, please? Sure. Uh when I uh, took my first classes in animal behavior and uh, learning psychology and so on, uh, the two worst sins you could commit as a scientist studying animal behavior was the use of anecdotes and being anthropomorphic. Uh, that is attributing um, human-like qualities to non-human entities. And uh, yet many of the early writers on animal behavior after Darwin, and even Darwin himself, were very anthropomorphic in how they uh, interpreted behavior. And partly this was because uh, they really wanted to uh, show how there were human type aspects to the behavior of other animals as a way of supporting uh, the views of uh, evolutionary continuity, mental continuity between uh, humans and other, and other animals. Uh, but there was a reaction, particularly in psychology, against this, and uh, the focus then became on rigid experimental, quote, objective studies of behavior. Uh, this is epitomized in people such as uh, John Watson and, uh, and later by B.F. Skinner, uh, who didn't want to talk at all about anything that seemed to imply human-like um, mental traits in other species. I looked at this uh, information uh, and uh, always was sort of perplexed about this. And then uh, in ethology, that 
trying to be very objective about their studies of animal behavior, people such as Tinbergen and, and Lorenz. Uh, Don Griffin, the one who uh, helped discover uh, echolocation in bats, at least put it on the, uh, on the map and substantiate it, uh, wrote this book on animal awareness, the quest of animal awareness in the 70s that really opened up the floodgates, you might say, to revisiting the topic of animal mentality, animal consciousness, and questions uh, such as that. And then there were discussions that people sort of were claiming, well, you're just going back to this old discredited uh, 19th century uh, use of anthropomorphic uh, attributions to, to other species. And I thought that, well, there's more to it than that. And so I came up with the idea of critical anthropomorphism in which uh, we base our interpretations or our, our predictions of what other animals are capable of doing mentally, behaviorally, based on what we know scientifically about their sensory processes, their ecology, their uh, behavioral uh, repertoire, and so on. So there were many studies stud looking at a vision in rats and trying to make conclusions uh, about vision in general, including in humans, by studying an animal uh, like albino rats that uh, basically have very poor vision because they are basically chemically oriented animals. And so I thought, well, this is actually uh, a very uncritical <laughs> uh, approach. They were ignoring the animal itself, what the animal was capable of, the animal's perspective. And so this is where I came up with the idea of critical anthropomorphism, in which we try to take into account the animal's behavioral repertoire, the animal's physiology, its ecology, its behavioral sensitivity to stimuli and so on. And doing that, we can make a better way of studying how they respond to stimuli and make inferences about their mental states, about their emotions, uh, about their uh, inner life, you might say. And this goes back to Jakob von Juxkel's idea of the Umwelt, the idea that all animals, including humans, and every individual, as well as uh, uh, at a species level, have their own way of parsing out stimuli in the world and reacting to those that are most salient to them. And these are going to differ across species, differ across individuals, but have nothing to do with uh, their, quotes intelligence or uh, whether or not they have an inner life or mental abilities to uh, react to stimuli, to make decisions, to feel, and so on. Thank you very much. And, and quite uh, a lot of the writing revolves also around comparative psychology. And could you elaborate a bit on what that is and why um, this is important when we're trying to study other animals? Well, comparative psychology has a long history. In fact, I'm just uh, uh, wrote with Lee, Lee Drickmer a uh, historical uh, review of this, uh, of the field. And uh, it 
was a balance between a Darwinian perspective that animals have psychological features that we need to understand in order to best understand our own species. Uh, the conflict be was between using animals to help understand people, non-human animals, uh, or looking for animal behavior as way of giving us principles that apply to all living animals, or whether we should focus on the species that we're looking at and try to understand their world, their behavior for its own sake. And compared to psychology, because compared to ethology, was more focused on coming up with principles. The reason to study other animals was to help us understand humans versus understanding the animals that we were in fact studying. So many psychologists uh, studying rats and pigeons had really no interest in pigeons and rats as a species, but only as models, as mechanisms to get to understanding what they were really interested in humans. And of course, many people would say, well, if you're interested in humans, you should study humans. And the counter is, well, but you can't do certain things with humans that we can with animals. Uh, this is particularly, of course, the case with neuroscience uh, research. So you have this conflicting and shifting back and forth uh, in the study of animal behavior as related to psychology and understanding human behavior. Franz de Waal is one of the people who I think has done a great job in trying to uh, parse out these shifting dynamics in his book. Like, uh, are we smart enough to know how smart animals are? Yes, absolutely. And as you're uh, speaking, you talk about, you know, things we can and cannot do uh, with other animals or things that we should or maybe should not do, like you talked about the bears and, you know, the baseball bat. And you have uh, a very long uh, interest and dedication to ethical treatment of animals. And some of your work revolves around, you know, the writings out around ethics and animal consciousness. Uh, how rubber is the ethical ruler. Could we, uh, could you elaborate a little bit on your work on ethical treatment of animals? Well, I've always been interested in, in that, uh, particularly as someone who uh, loves uh, reptiles, particularly snakes. And of course, snakes do not have a really great press and uh, many people hate them and uh, uh, kill them whenever time, whenever they can. And uh, that always sort of perplexed me as somebody who really loves snakes, realizing of course that uh, some species are very dangerous and deadly and uh, snakes still kill uh, hundreds of, uh, maybe a hundred thousand people or more a year around the world. Uh, but in areas where there are venomous snakes, that's a problem. In the United States, for instance, where we have very few venomous snakes, they're very easily recognized from non-venomous species. And uh, the number of people who get killed from snake bite is uh, probably less than those who are killed by bee stings and certainly far less than those who are killed by dogs. Uh, 
it's sort of perplexing why we have these uh, fears of certain animals, not others. Well, from an evolutionary perspective, we can sort of see how they started, but from a welfare and ethic perspective, we wanna be able to counter those uh, tendencies. Uh, and, but how do you do that? Uh, I'm concerned about how we look at animals and we need to consider their lives in nature as well as in captivity. We need to provide for them uh, the captive animals in, uh, in the best way possible, knowing, however, that any captive animal that we keep in a zoo, for instance, is being deprived of important features of the natural environment. And that's uh, the idea that I developed of controlled deprivation, that uh, any animal in captivity, including a pet, is being deprived of certain aspects of its evolutionary history, its normal ecology, our job is to decide which of those are the more important ones. For instance, space, how much space uh, do we, uh, should animals have, or the temperatures, or the diet, the kinds of things that are talked about in the five domains, for instance. Uh, we are always depriving animals of some aspects that they would probably not prefer not to uh, have, have to deal with yet we can do this in good ways or bad ways and our scientific studies should help us develop the best ways to maintain animals in captivity and the uh, up continual updating of the five domains model for instance the latest paper that came out in animals in 2020 uh, is I think a, a useful way to uh, ask the questions and then come up with uh, answers based on the latest and best research. Yes, and I believe that, um, you know, people also have, you know, are, are doing this, for example, through the use of the Delphi methods where people from both the captive and the wild, because you have mentioned a few times already your interest, but also the importance of understanding what animals uh, do in nature and, uh, and then trying to find out what are the ones that are knowing that we are depriving animals, but what are the things that matter to animals that are important? And so using these types of methods where uh, people come together and, and discuss, uh, you know, findings, of course, in the wild, but also from observations of working with animals in both fields in an ex situ to try and find out what, what are kind of the, the, the weights, the values to those animals. And are we, um, and so how good are we at being able to find out what, what matters most to the animals, what is most important, as you say. And so therefore, I think it's so interesting and important that we have this interdisciplinary approach that we have looking, that we're looking at various methodologies that can be used to gain insights, whether it's through the five domains or through other methods. And for those listening that are, are wondering about like controlled deprivation, uh, could you give a few, you already mentioned diet and space, could you give a few examples of perhaps practical work that you have done with certain species uh, that where you were, you know, deciding on what uh, and what kind of changes maybe were made as you were working with, with animals either in a zoo or in your labs? 
Well, there's a whole variety of things when you start talking about, uh, like look at the, at the five domains, what you are depriving animals of. Uh, early on, a uh, number of years ago, quite a few years ago, I wrote a review of learning studies in reptiles because uh, reptiles have not been the focus of, uh, of learning studies nearly as much as birds or uh, mammals or even fish. And uh, what I discovered is that many of the early papers uh, were, uh, again, being sort of uncritically anthropomorphic because they would test their animals at the same temperature that you would a lab rat. I mean, right? I mean, a lizard looks like a sort of a scaly rat. Uh, but rats really do well at about, you know, 20, 25 at most Celsius, uh, whereas uh, a reptile at that uh, level, many of them would act very slow, sluggish and stupidly. Whereas uh, their maximum temperature, like some of the uh, monitor lizards and so on, would be over 30 Celsius or 35 Celsius. That's when they're at their peak, if, uh, let's say mental efficiency. And if we didn't know something about the normal temperature at which animals are active uh, and best perform, uh, we would come to erroneous conclusions, as well as those animals being kept at these cool temperatures are not in a very good state. So uh, we need to understand more about the natural history of animals, the kinds of environments in which they uh, thrive, uh, whether it's uh, arboreal, we keep animals that are arboreal on flat surfaces. Uh, that's not their normal habitat. If they're a burrowing kind of animal, you have to provide them the proper uh, stimuli, uh, even though that means you can't see them if, if they're underground. Uh, so uh, you have to really know something about the natural history of the animal and use that information to design the proper environments to keep those animals uh, in captivity, if that's what you're going to do. Yes, wonderful. Thank you so much. Because words like, you know, for example, deprivation or controlled deprivation, people might wonder, like, you know, why is this a good thing? Uh, and this is why it's so important to really, you know, engage in conversation or in reading or in other ways so that we understand various concepts or methods that are being proposed such as this one, knowing that we have animals in our care, knowing that we are depriving them of certain aspects of that they would normally do in the wild, whether that is good for their well-being or not, that's, that's of course something else, but how do we then uh, understand what is uh, what is important to the animals? So how can we control it uh, in a way that the animals are not deprived from the things that really matter to them? So thank you so much for uh, explaining another very important concept. And before actually we- uh, Let me kind of elaborate on that a little bit. Absolutely. Uh, the one of the reasons I came up with the term control deprivation was because I was very concerned about the excessive use of enrichment, as if somehow uh, enrichment uh, in uh, in zoos, for instance, was somehow super good that it was uh, better than normal, whereas you were in effect 
through enrichment, providing animals more uh, complex environments, uh, the opportunity to forage for food and so on. Uh, you were not enriching their environments. You were just trying to overcome the deprivation that you were inevitably doing in keeping these animals. And so uh, I wanted to get the idea across that you weren't enriching the animals so much as trying to provide the necessary aspects to their and for their well-being. Yes, and that's that's a very, very important point. And I'm glad you you elaborated on it because it's also, you know, people have talked are talking about environmental refinement and all kinds of other terminologies to kind of draw our attention to the fact that, you know, like you say, it's not about just, you know, we are making this great by doing environmental enrichment, but we the point that we started from is already not a, a good point. So, and this is why we also have these these discussions on, you know, when is something enriching uh, to an animal when what we are really talking about is just very good care, you know, good husbandry, good care of the animals. So nesting materials, or like you say, providing a burrow, maybe you don't see the animals, but are these all the, the things that matter to the animals that are important to the animals, then, you know, you're really creating good care, good environments for animals uh, and not the more like a traditional uh, environmental enrichment that many uh, talk about. And of course, you know, knowing the history, I still remember you, you told me many years ago, um, you said to me, do you want a new idea? <laughs> and, and you said something along the line of like, just look back also in history and older books and, and publications and what people have been talking about. And this is one of those where you're again, highlighting how you know the environments of the animals and the history of environmental enrichment was born out of the necessity of making environments of animals better um, and being aware of, like you say, what we are depriving animals uh, from and really looking at where should we be uh, in the first place. And then maybe the environmental enrichment is like a cherry on the cake, which is something that Dr. David Shepardson often talks about. You know, if we are so good, then environmental enrichment as we know it uh, is something very different than how it's often used today. Yes, one of the things that uh, I think we also need to be aware of is that even if we keep animals in captivity and what seem to be really good conditions and they're healthy and they breed and raise their young and so on, uh, we still are uh, depriving animals of things that are current, that might occur in nature that we have no idea about. And uh, I'll give you my sort of little anecdote here is uh, I got interested in iguanas uh, through Stan Rand, who was the uh, scientific one, well, scientific director at uh, the Smithsonian Tropical Research Institute in Panama, and uh, he encouraged me to come down there and look at iguanas. Well, I was interested in snakes, so I went there uh, wanting to look at snakes. But snakes, even in the tropics, are not in great numbers and they're hard to see and follow and look at their behavior in detail. Uh, but these iguanas, uh, the baby iguanas were all over the clearing where we went. And uh, I got really fascinated in these animals and uh, the social interactions. Uh, 
Stan had been monitoring the nest sites. There were, these animals congregate sometimes in large numbers. Uh, maybe a hundred animals may come to a little clearing in a season when the females lay their eggs and they dig their burrows and they uh, compete for, the, uh, for these nest sites and they lay their eggs and then they leave and then the animals will hatch out at some time in the future uh, and uh, then disperse into the, in, into the forest. Uh, but it turned out nobody had ever actually watched the hatching. They had all these data on the females laying the eggs and Stan had a line there and everything, but nobody actually uh, was there when the animals hatched. Well, you don't know really when the animals hatch, uh, except you start seeing them at a certain period of time uh, over several weeks in, in late spring. Uh, so I decided uh, and brought students down to uh, uh, sit in the blind uh, for days at a time waiting for these animals to hatch and uh, we finally did and uh, uh, saw them and we filmed them and uh, had a my other cover story was in science uh, back in the 70s on uh, the social life at a social rookery i mean the social behavior of iguanas at a reptile rookery these babies when they uh, came out of the nest site interacted with each other in a very complex social way. Uh, animals from different nest holes would congregate together and then leave the clearing together. They would uh, swim across this little island to the mainland in groups as uh, seemingly a way to avoid predation and were very, and hung out with each other. With these kinds of things you would never see in a captive environment uh, at all. Uh, the in, in, really complicated, rich social lives that these animals uh, were, were having. And so that really uh, focused my mind on the idea that in nature, these animals are performing much more complicated and cognitively adept behavior that uh, it's almost impossible to, to see even in the best captive environments. Yes, thank you for sharing that. And I think these are also so important, like the information that we don't have. And also then to see, like now that we know this, in what ways, you know, is this that important to the animals that that should be part of, um, you know, and, and it's not about is this possible or not, but really asking that question about, um, you know, is this important? Uh, enough for the animals that it should be part of a care, you know, something that should be considered in animal care and welfare programs. Uh, and so these are, but without those insights, of course, it's really wonderful to hear all your, all these stories uh, of the things that you've done. Um, but also now that we know that, um, what do we do with that information, right? So it's, um, it's very interesting um, to think about that and important, I think. And I think especially also now, um, for example, in this period of, of COVID and with uh, many of the facilities closing, you know, people have seen uh, lots of behaviors that we haven't seen before or have seen that animals are reacting or not reacting in certain ways. And again, also asking that question, what do we do uh, with all the information that we now know, whether it's from the wild or from um, the facilities where the animals are. 
So, you know, we come to almost the end of the of the podcast and, you know, I would love to hear a little bit more about your work on, on studying play. Uh, but before we move on, uh, you mentioned that it's fairly easy to actually recognize because maybe some people listening, they are like, oh, it's easy to recognize poisonous from non-poisonous snakes. Uh, what would that be for the curious people uh, thinking back at this uh, comment you made? Well, in uh, in North America and in, in, in Europe, it's uh, quite uh Vipers are your main uh, problem in, in, in Europe, and uh, they have pretty distinctive heads and body shape, and uh, there aren't that many. And in North America, you have rattlesnakes, copperheads, and uh, water moccasins, cottonmouth moccasins. Uh, again, they're pit vipers that have distinctive uh, head shape, body shape, they have these pits. And the only other venomous snake are uh, coral snakes, which are uh, pretty much a burrowing animal that have black and white, uh, black, red, and yellow uh, stripes, and which are very uh, easily uh, recognized as well. So in the US, there aren't that many venomous snakes. Out west, uh, the western part of this, uh, the country, you're gonna have more. And uh, many people out there actually have learned quite well how to live with them and uh, even encourage them uh, in their backyards. I've been out places in Arizona and so on uh, where uh, people are uh, pretty uh, cool about uh, having these animals because they're really pretty fantastic. Uh, uh, these are long-lived, rattlesnakes are long-lived. They have parental care. They uh, do really pretty interesting things, plus to help control rodent populations and so on. Uh, but that's not, you know, case everywhere. But uh, progress is being made in, for instance, uh, getting people to be aware of uh, both the dangers and the ecological role that uh, snakes, even venomous snakes, uh, place. Uh, there's uh, progress being made in reducing these rattlesnake roundup uh, atrocious events uh, in, occurring in places in Texas and so on. Uh, and there's, so there are groups and there are uh, proposals that are gaining traction that uh, perhaps are going to uh, increase both the knowledge and tolerance for snakes, even venomous snakes. In other countries, Africa, Asia, and so on, uh, discriminating venomous and um, dangerous snakes from non-dangerous ones is uh, far more difficult and uh, people need to be much more careful. Yeah, so that's absolutely wonderful. You make such an important point with regards to education and you know how facilities uh, or tourist office and all kinds of others, which already do, of course, uh, to a certain extent or some to a larger extent. But really, you know, this information and education and uh, and also the examples of living uh, with other uh, beings, including snakes, uh, that's just wonderful and such important stories to share. So let's move to your work on play. Um, you know, you have a book on play, which, you know, highlights criteria of play, that 
we can use to study also play and new directions in, in studying the evolution of play. So could you talk to us a little bit about one of your passions, which is uh, play? Well, uh, you know, I could spend a long, long time on, on, on that. And so we just have a few minutes left. Uh, but I really got interested in play, uh, something which I had never seen in reptiles uh, growing up uh, or doing the, the work, or early work I had done, uh, partly because, you know, we were told that only play occurs only in animals such as uh, mammals and maybe some birds, uh, but uh, nowhere else in the animal uh, kingdom. Uh, so I wasn't too sensitized about uh, looking for play uh, elsewhere. Uh, but I really got interested in play itself when I had to rear these bear cubs in my house and found that these animals were so playful, particularly as cubs. Yet, as adults, bears are not that social compared to, say, uh, primates, uh, apes, and so on. So that play behavior couldn't be used as a preparation for their complex social lives later, it seemed to me. And that was one of the uh, major theories about play uh, behavior that was being promulgated, that it was a, uh, a way of uh, getting animals into complex sociality. That could be, but didn't necessarily the only role that play uh, was playing in a way. So uh, that got me sensitized that play was really pretty interesting phenomenon. And then uh, at the National Zoo, I visited the National Zoo in Washington, D.C., and uh, there was a turtle there uh, that they, uh, curator had said, hey, the oldest basketball player in the in the zoo, and it was uh, this big Nile soft-shell turtle, older than I was, that would, uh, they provided with basketballs and various toys, and it was interacting with, uh, with them in a way that if you saw a dog doing that, uh, you would say, hey, that's play. So that got me thinking about where and how uh, play originated and actually what play was. And I looked at the definitions of play and they all fell short in my mind because they didn't say exactly what you were looking for. They assumed that what you were watching was in fact play. And if it, you didn't think it was play, then those criteria uh, or definitions wouldn't apply anyhow. And so I came up then by searching through the literature, combining the various definitions and criteria play that people had proposed and came up with five criteria that uh, I've advanced and seem to be fairly widely used now as ways of identifying putative play behavior in animals, fish, insects, uh, octopus, amphibians, uh, reptiles, as well as uh, the typical birds and mammals. Yes, wonderful. So now I'm completely spacing out on the English word for the little um, frogs when they're like before they're frogs. The little tadpoles. Yes, tadpoles, because I just was reminded of one of your 
you know, stories and examples that you gave in some of the seminars that we have done in person uh, on animal play. And you have a wonderful tadpole story. Uh, would you uh, be willing to share the tadpole story with us? Yes, I uh, gave a talk on, on play at a, at a herpetology meeting and uh, I mentioned the reptile play work we had done and uh, we had good evidence of play in fishes, uh, but I made the statement that I had no uh, indication, evidence uh, of any type of play behavior in an amphibian. Well, a fella <laughs> uh, came up to me afterwards and he said, I think I got an example. And he was the curator of the North American Amphibian Conservation Center at the Detroit Zoo. And he took are telling me about these uh, Vietnamese uh, frogs uh, that had uh, big tadpoles uh, uh, larvae and how they seem to uh, want to cavort in the water columns uh, where air bubbles were being released and so on. And uh, that sort of intrigued me. And I ended up uh, spending a, a semester at the Detroit Zoo uh, looking at this phenomenon. And what we found is that if you have these tadpoles in a very tall tank and you have air stones that are releasing bubbles, uh, air, the tadpoles would get at the base of it, allow that water column and the air bubbles to shoot them to the top and then go back down and redo it again, just as if you were a, uh, a kid going up and down a, a, a ski slope or a, a sledding. Uh, it seemed to be something that they were doing voluntarily. They were doing it for some reinforcement, some pleasure that uh, uh, they were getting from it. And uh, we then looked at, well, what would be alternative explanations? And one would be that, well, uh, they were getting the air. There was because the oxygen, the, the rich oxygen in that water column. And uh, so I devised an experiment where instead of using uh, air, uh, we used helium, inert gas. And uh, we found that uh, this tadpole did the same behavior, even though it was helium, and we couldn't keep this experiment for very long because helium is not, uh, you know, oxygen uh, that the animals uh, need. But the stimulation of the behavior was uh, uh, seemingly rewarding for them. And it's in a way that's something that we could, through critical anthropomorphism, relate to. Hey, our own pleasure in this kind of an environment, you know, think of spas and, uh, and things like that. And later on, I found that uh, fish. Uh, uh, in, uh, in tall columns where there's air being released uh, will also engage in this sort of repetitive kind of swooshing up to the top and going back to the bottom and uh, as a way of maybe reacting to sort of a pretty boring environment. Yes, I really love that story. And I think these stories are so important. And it also reminds me of when you and I did, um, a, we were invited to do this public lecture in Copenhagen and it was kind of divided into parts and I showed some examples of play in mammals and some birds. And then you did a talk and you showed some play also in tortoises and other animals. And, um, you know, there was a whole discussion afterwards about 
whether you know who was playing and who wasn't playing and uh, and that it was quite difficult for some people to you know imagine i guess that uh, that the tortoise uh, was playing as much as the dog was playing in that video yes this is something that people sort of us uh, have to get their head around uh, probably one of the best examples uh, recently for me was here at the Knoxville Zoo. We have a Komodo dragon, and we have a bit interested in uh, in uh, playing Komodo dragons again at the National Zoo, and uh, I have I've written about that. And a, a student did her uh, uh, master's thesis on on uh, play behavior in the uh, in. in Komodo dragons. Uh, but here at the Knoxville Zoo, we had a an animal, uh, a Khaleesi, that I got to know. And we would brought, brought in toys, including buckets and balls and things like this, well, and boxes. And uh, what the animal did was uh, repeatedly, if you brought in a bucket or a box, it would go up, put its head in the box, and walk around with it on its head. <laughs> And this is something that orangutans are, are known to do. They like to put things on their heads and, and walk around with them. And uh, people had no problem saying, hey, they're sort of playing with these, uh, with these leaves and things like that. Uh, here you have this lizard that would uh, put its head on and would think, now this is a top predator, so it really doesn't need to worry about uh, predators. Uh, most lizards uh, would be very reluctant to cut itself off from visual stimulation uh, because it could be then uh, preyed upon. Uh, yet these animals uh, were walking around with these things on their heads. And then a, a few years later, uh, there's been a uh, observation, I have a video of it, of a, a Komodo dragon leaving the ocean with a big empty turtle shell on its head, just like the animals in the uh, uh, in the zoo uh, were covering their head with their bucket. Wonderful, absolutely great! All these stories. That's just uh, such a wonderful way, also, to close this podcast. I mean, we could be talking. We'll definitely have to have you back and hear more about today and everything else because there's just so much there. We will definitely also link for those of you caring for reptiles and amphibians. There's a wonderful article on environmental enrichment and cognitive complexity. So lots of information there. And thank you again so much, Gordon, for coming on and talking about some of the things that you have done in your very long and distinguished career. Thank you. That was a lot, a lot of fun and I enjoyed it. Thanks for the opportunity.